welcome to the 2017 Outpost Sermon Series Podcast. Today we begin our series on Answers to a Skeptic, in which we bring many common questions that skeptics have to light regarding the Christian worldview. Tonight we begin our series by answering the question, How could a good God allow suffering? Why is there suffering in the world? How should Christians properly understand suffering? Find out the answers to these and other questions right now. Welcome back, 2017. Some of you guys are so excited to be back. It's like I see all my friends. It's awesome. It's so much fun to be back. Home was boring. This is exciting. Some of you guys just got done with the last week of school and realized this semester is going to be horrible and my life is going to suck and I'm like freaking out right now. It's a lot of emotions that kind of happen at this point in this semester. And, uh, but we are very grateful to have the opportunity to be with you tonight and see all of your smiling faces. Now, tonight we are starting a series that we're going to be doing for the next, I believe, five weeks, looking at answers to a skeptic. We've never done anything quite like this before, but we are basically just addressing what are the most common objections that CSU students have to Christ, and just addressing those head on. And we're going to be doing some other uh, series throughout the semester, but for the next five weeks we're going to be doing this one. And tonight, I'm going to be talking about the problem of pain. How can a good God exist with so much pain and suffering in the world? Now, I love working with university students. I love working with you guys because college is this pressure cooker of, of wrestling with questions about what do I believe? Who am I? What am I going to live for? And questions about who is God become central in those late night conversations and you're real about who who am I and what does it mean to believe in Christ or God or who is he? And for some of you guys, you're Christians and you're walking in here and you're saying, I'm trying to just learn how to live out my faith. And I remember going to college, loving the Lord, but realizing that in many ways my faith was a little bit shallow. I had always grown up in kind of a Christian world and so I'd never been really challenged. And in college, college is kind of a deconstructionist culture. And so all of a sudden I was being challenged with why do I believe what I believe and going deeper in my faith. You know, Christians should not be um, stressed out or worried about the questions. We should be engaged with the questions that come up. Like a scientist who realizes he doesn't know everything, suddenly it spurs him on to greater and greater revelation of truth. But... For Christians, some of you guys are like, okay, man, I'm like wrestling with friends who are asking me tough questions that I don't know I answer them. And we're going to try to help you with a little bit of that maybe tonight. Some of you guys aren't followers of Christ, I guarantee, just in a room this size. And you're just in here either because your roommate drug you or you're just kind of curious about what we're talking about or whatever reason. We're happy that you're here. And for you, you know, understanding not just that they're that you can have an intellect and believe in God is important, but also to know why does it matter? Why does it matter to know whether God exists or not or that you can defend the belief in, in an all-creative power? Um, what does it matter? And so tonight I have the very difficult uh, challenge, not because the topic really is all that difficult per se, but because in the next 30, 40 minutes I have to explain not only the problem of pain, but also address why does it matter in our lives. And I guarantee you, I am not going to be that eloquent and that good at it in that short of time. There's no way that we could get to the, the depth and the width of this conversation. 
And so I'll just forewarn you, this is just going to be a sky-high overview in some ways. I'm going to go as deep as quickly as I can. There's only so much I can do in this time. And so a couple of things we're also going to do is we are going to do a couple Q&A sessions is post-posts over this next few weeks. And so t- next Thursday night, after the service, for anybody who would like to, we're going to have a post-post Q&A session. So if you have questions that come up during this talk or next week's talk, and you're like, man, I don't know if Nate really addressed this or I have this objection, you know, feel free to text those uh, to that number, and, and we will try to address those at that time then and there and maybe get a little more in-depth. But my goal here is really to spur on some thoughts, questions, observations, and hopefully your small groups and your small group and resource leaders can help walk with you through that. I've got a whole bunch of, of feedback here. Should I move over to the mic? or? All right, so let's dive in. The problem of pain. A couple of resources I think I might even have up there, but if you want to go more in-depth in this topic, you can also look at uh, Alvin Planiger's God, Freedom, and Evil, C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain, or Timothy Keller's The Reason for God. Those are good books I'd recommend to you as well. They will be far more in-depth and far more eloquent than I'll be able to have time for tonight. But I heard it said once, if God is God, then he is not good, or if he is good, then he is not God. On our campus, there may not be a greater issue with the idea of Christianity than the one we're talking about tonight. Whether talking about the destruction of Haiti by natural disasters, the sex trafficking issue around the world, or the lives lost or ruined from genocide, the world does not seem to be led by a loving God. It seems as if either he is not a God of love, is indifferent to human suffering, or else he is not a God of power, not unable to do anything about it. For some people, this is a philosophical question noted in seemingly illogical idea of a good God in an evil world. For others, a deeply personal one based on tragedy in their own life. In either case, it seems an insurmountable issue in faith to our world. What is the Christian supposed to do with this? Of all the arguments against God, this one is the one most rooted in its assumptions on ready evidence and experience. Suffering does exist. Real evil seems to be everywhere in our world. So how could God be good? Despite the reality of suffering in the world, the effort to disprove the existence of a good God because of human suffering is actually now acknowledged by nearly all sides of philosophers and theologians to be completely bankrupt. Why is that? Sam Harris, in a Huffington Post article, stated, there is no God and you know it. God cannot be omnipotent and omniscient with human suffering. Is he right? The assumption that God and human suffering cannot both exist are based on at least three core assumptions that upon further review require a great amount of faith by their adherers. And I realize that tonight you guys are walking back from Christmas, or, uh, yeah, Christmas break and the greatest struggle you had to think through or wrestle through over break was whether or not to binge watch your favorite show on Netflix. And tonight I'm going to go into an incredibly deep, heady, and heavy concept. But if you will bear with me for the next few minutes, we're going to journey together and look at these three concepts and what legitimacy they have. And then from there, springboard into why does it matter? 
So the first one tonight, the first assumption that Heffington has there is there is no purpose to human suffering. What do we mean by suffering that we object to? It sounds kind of obvious, but we have to address at least the foundation here first. Google calls suffering this when it says um, the state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. Now, those are not by themselves intrinsically evil. Now, I'm not disqualifying that evil does exist, and we're going to get to that. But we do have to delineate the ideas that not all suffering is necessarily bad. Pain, for example, I played football in college and in high school. And let me tell you, I put my body into an incredible amount of pain uh, and suffering in order to be a good football player because that was the way I got stronger. Pain by itself wasn't intrinsically bad because I actually got better at playing my sport because of that. As the stupid you know, T-shirts that people wear at the gym say, you know, pain is, is weakness leaving the body, right? <laughs> Some of you guys have that T-shirt, I know. Um, and we all wish you didn't. Dis- <laughs> distress. Google says distress is part of suffering. Well, distress, I have a three-year-old. He's going to be three in about two days. And he is distressed every time he sees candy and I don't give it to him. Now, is that wrong of me to make him distressed? No. It would be wrong of me to do the opposite, to alleviate him of that, you know, that stress in his life. Because as complicated as it is, one, to try to explain the nutritional value of candy versus like his food to a three-year-old, even if he did understand that, he still doesn't have the willpower and the maturity to actually keep from it. I have to help him with that. And so I keep him from eating too much candy, a little bit in moderation is okay, but I keep him from that for his sake. Now, I'm creating suffering in his life, but it's not intrinsically bad, or hardships. At the simplest level, you're in school. Tests are a form of hardship. Homework, all of you would probably acknowledge as a form of hard work, of hardship. Discipline of any form is seen as a virtue and yet is by itself hardship. I say that just to lay the foundation because when we talk about suffering, what are we talking about? The world says evil and suffering. Which often, which is what really they mean is suffering that seems destructive or pointless. That's what we're talking about. Seems destructive or pointless, and what could God get out of that? And yet, as Timothy Keller points out in his book, The Reason for God, just because you cannot see a point to suffering does not mean it does not exist. To argue otherwise is fallacious. Just because you cannot see a good reason for God to allow something to happen doesn't mean there isn't one. If our intellect can't think of a good reason, then there can't be one is an assumption that elevates the human intellect far above what a rational person would give their own assessment of their own faculties and challenges a God-likeness within human uh, anatomy. We're not that smart. We don't always know. We don't always understand. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. There's a fallacy in this idea that's illustrated by the Noceums illustration of Alvin Plantinga. If you look into your pup tent for a St. Bernard and you don't see one, then it's reasonable to assume that there is no St. Bernard in your tent. If, however, you look into your tent for a Noceum, an extremely small insect with a disproportionate large bite for its size, 
and you don't see one, it's not reasonable to assume there isn't one. After all, no one can see him. In the same way, people assume in suffering that it would be much more like the St. Bernard than the Noceum, that we would somehow obviously understand why suffering exists. But why would that be the case? This certainly isn't true in many people's personal experiences. For me, I was a young man and experienced an incredible bout of depression that almost ended my life. And shortly after that, I had the Lord speak to me. The first time I ever heard the Lord speak, he said, Nate, I love you, and I'm going to get you through this. But there was still a battle that waged. I was, I was depressed to an extreme that I can't even imagine today. I was socially inept, essentially. I would break down on a daily basis, just sobbing, un- uncertain of how to overcome this depression that was racking my life. It ended supernaturally when I first experienced what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, God's presence in my life in a pretty powerful way. And forever from that moment, that depression would leave my life. But the thing was, in that moment, in those moments of intense suffering for months, I would have given anything to have gotten over that, to have alleviated that pain in my life. But in hindsight... There is nothing that I would have traded that experience for. It was one of the most foundational moments of my faith. That moment, because part of the challenge for me in that time was depression based on, is God real? I was wrestling with purpose and meaning. And in that wrestling, I became desperate for God in a way I never would have otherwise. And when God showed up in my reality, all of a sudden I was spiraled into a level of relationship and intimacy with God that I never could have imagined otherwise without that experience. See, that suffering, as horrendous and horrific as it was, became my salvation in my life. And we, I guarantee, would not be here right here and right now if it wasn't for me going through that. See, sometimes in the moment we don't understand, but in hindsight, maybe we will. Joseph in the Bible is a man who, as a boy, was sold into slavery because of the evil of his brothers. They hated him. They wanted him gone. They thought of killing him. They decided to make some money. That's how wicked they were in their hearts. And so they sold him into slavery to Egypt. And for years, he eventually was thrown into prison and tormented in his life, not knowing what was happening and why. But through the series of circumstances from that experience, Joseph would later be raised up to the highest position in the land, eventually through the word of the Lord in his life, saving all of Egypt from a drought that was coming, even saving his own family. See, we don't always know in the moment, but maybe someday we will. If we cannot understand everything that happens, why does that mean that there is not a reason when we talk about an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God? I have a there's a pastor there. At, uh, I go to a church called Foothills, and, and our pastor, Steve Curry, is on sabbatical right now. And there's a former missionary that's uh, working at the church right now in, as an interim pastor. And, and Daryl Beebe uh, was a missionary. Him and his family and his, his wife and his two kids uh, were sent to an uh, island off the Caribbean where they ministered there as missionaries reaching out to the people. Well, they were only there for about nine weeks before tragedy happened. Men came into their compound late at night, took his wife and his kids, beat him with 
the butts of rifles to the point where they thought he was dead and left him for dead. He to this day still has a mark, a large indent in his forehead from it. His wife and kids were taken away. The next few hours for his wife were some of the most horrendous things that we won't even speak of. His children were traumatized for life from that. Bibi came to, the father came to and called for help. And there was a rescue party that was assembled and they eventually found his family and saved and they were saved. After that, though, you can imagine the amount of hurt and pain and suffering that they had to overcome the, the hurt in their emotional as well as physical selves. And they escaped that island. They left for years and they went somewhere else. They ministered somewhere else. 21 years later, the Lord spoke to them and said, I want you back. I want you to go back. There was an opportunity they had to go back to that island. And they wanted nothing other than to keep away from that place for the rest of their lives. They felt the Lord tell them they were supposed to go, and so they did. And for a few weeks, they went and they ministered on that island, this place that had tormented their whole adult life. And while there, they they experienced some of the most supernatural and powerful ministry of their entire ministry career. At one point, they were invited into a prison where, to speak, and they really didn't want to do this because they were afraid they might encounter uh, some of the people that had actually hurt them. But they really felt this was from the Lord, so they went to this prison and began to speak to the people there and begin to share the gospel message. And more than eight people got miraculously healed in the prison. A bunch of people got saved in, in an ensuing altar call. And the Lord all of a sudden spoke to Daryl in that moment. And he wrote a little book about this, and I was reading it this week in in preparation for this. But he said this, Suddenly the Lord spoke clearly to me with words I never will forget. He said, Daryl, had I not withheld my hand 21 years ago, these men would not have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. With their eternal soul was on one side of the scales of time in your comfort and safety on the other. I withheld my hand and the scales tipped in their favor. But remember, when your eternal soul was on one side of the scale of time and my son's comfort and safety was on the other, I withheld my hand and the scales tipped in your favor. I was deeply moved as these words penetrated my heart. It was a true aha moment as I realized just how much God loved us. His heart had broken for us during our suffering, but he had allowed it so that years and years later, we might return here to share with people who desperately needed the gospel message. God had allowed his son to suffer so I could receive his forgiveness. And he allowed us to suffer to these men and women, right, that they might hear and respond to the message of God's love. God's plans are always better than man's. Second premise that the skeptic gives to the problem of pain and suffering in the world is this, that free will conflicts with God's sovereignty. J.L. Mackey, in his book, The Miracle of Theism, argues that if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless suffering. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, a good and powerful God does not exist. Some other God may exist, but not the traditional God. The argument here is that if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and good, then he is ultimately on the hook for human tragedy because he could stop it. Couldn't he? 
Underlying the argument is a hidden premise that even Christian philosophers have wrestled with. Namely, can God's sovereignty sink with free will? C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, addressed this in the poem of pain when he states, his being God's omnipotence, meaning all power, if you don't know that funny word, means power to do all that is intrinsically possible, not to do the intrinsically impossible. Meaninglessness combined meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix them to the two other words, God can. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives. Okay, following here? He's basically saying God, even God works within logic. He doesn't do two things that are Exclusive, And those, that is not a contradiction to his power. Because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense, even when we talk about God. God can't make nonsense sense. And so when we talk about two concepts, if, God, if man has free will and God has given that choice and that free will to him, he cannot then dictate human choice. The philosopher Alvin Plantiga, in his groundbreaking work, God, Freedom, and Evil, pointed out in a similar vein of that of C.S. Lewis that God, though omnipotent, could not be expected to do literally anything. God could not, for example, create a square circle, act contrary to his nature, or more to the point, create beings with free will that would never choose evil. What both of these men are highlighting is the sovereignty of God does not exceed into the irrational. Even God, by his nature, is rational, even if we do not fully understand his rationale as limited beings ourselves, we realize he still works within the rational framework of reality. As C.S. Lewis says, these illogical ideas are non-entities. They, they do not even make sense, even talking to God. To highlight just how profound some of these arguments are in their fuller uh, depth, the atheist philosopher even fails, admits, Alvin Plantiga has convinced most of us, if indeed we were not already convinced, that the free will defense exonerates God from the imputation of a certain kind of incapacity. Not even an omnipotent being can guarantee the best of all possible worlds, for if such a world must contain certain free beings, it will by be partly up to them what transpires. So, you may ask, how did we get here? How did we get into this world with a good God with so much evil? And for that, we have to go to the beginning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, in the poem of creation, we see God's creative, powerful work in the world to create and design all living things. And yet, in verse 26, we're going to go into what is considered the something of the human dominion concept. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the air, over the livestock of all the wi- and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, Hubba hubba. And increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. It's in there. See, read it. Rule over the fish 
fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed on it, they will be your food. All the vegetarians say amen. A um, couple, couple of things to just highlight here. There's a whole lot here. I don't have time to go into all of it. Well, I want to just extrapolate just for a second or a couple of observations here. One, in this story, we see the beginning of what is called the human dominion concept. God may have created the worlds, but he gave it to Adam and Eve. Not for destruction, but for good. But he gave it to him. He said, here, I've, I've made this. Now take care of it. Now, the garden is something that he made. But what's interesting is the whole world wasn't like some perfect utopia. There was a garden. There was a little area where God said, this is where my rule is felt, where my reign is experienced, where my beauty is seen. Take it and advance it into the rest of the world. Take it and go beyond its borders. Take care of it where it is, but advance it beyond its borders into the rest of the world. That was our charge. We were gardeners by nature. We are, in some ways, called to be gardeners. And here we are. Yeah, and all the uh, environmental science guys were like, man. But afterwards, Genesis 2 and we get into 3, there's this, there's this account of God gave mankind an option. This is what I'm calling you to do, but I'm going to give you an out. And so there's this tree. Because of Adam and Eve's bad dietary choices, all of a sudden, there we find this other story in Genesis chapter 3. If you turn with me over there, in verse 17, we'll pick up the story again. But it says, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit, that's not a... Uh, not an absolute, but he means eight fruits from the tree of which I command you. Women are wise. You must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and, Eve and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, that might sound a little strange, like there's a tree of life. But throughout the Bible, God worked in living metaphors. I mean, even, even creation, even matter, is something of a living metaphor to a spiritual God. Right? He's not a physical God. He's a spiritual God. Why does matter even exist? And, but here is this living metaphor that we see in this story. And a couple of things I want to highlight here before we go on. One, do you notice that God didn't curse the earth? He said, cursed is the ground because of you, because of what you did, because this is the ramifications, one of my favorite words, the implications of what you just did. Now you are not going to be under my rule. You're not going to be under my reign. You're not going to be under my protection and the beauty of my kingdom on this earth. You are walking away from it. And because you don't want to be a part of it, I can't let you into my 
home into my world. And so he cast them out of the garden. But the problem was they were advancing. Instead of advancing with the garden, now they were advancing without it. They were advancing without God's protection, his guardianship. In some ways, I, you know, I have a car. This is a bad analogy, but bear with me. I have this car, and this last week, it started making some funny noises. So I took it into the mechanic the other day. The mechanic said, yeah, here is your problem. This is your problem. That's your problem. I can take care of it for you. I said, awesome. And he fixed it. But if I don't have the mechanic in my life, eventually that car is going to break down pretty quick because I'm not very good with cars. And in some ways, this is like what happened. God, God was always meant to work with us. He was, al- he was always going to be our source of power and means of help and resources. We were supposed to do this with him. And instead we said, we don't want you. We're just going to do it ourselves. Sort of like a child. A child without a parent becomes exponentially, uh, have higher risk of all kinds of dangers that could come up in their life. If their parent's there, a lot of those things are alleviated because the parent's taking care of them, watching over them, making sure these potential dangers and issues don't happen. If you add a parent who is omnipotent and omniscient and all these other characteristics of God, all of a sudden it becomes impossible as long as you're under the parent's care for these issues to come up. But we walk away from them. All these other potentials happen. And here is Adam and Eve, and they walk away from God's rule. And all these other potentials that were not meant to be part of their reality suddenly become part of their reality. You know, we in Christianity, we, we debate in theology a little bit of the fine-tuning of the original creation in some ways. But at the very least, you could argue whether or not you're like young earth, old earth, evolutionary process in whatever capacity. Whatever your thoughts are on all that, at some point, we would all probably agree that there was always a potential for suffering, even in the original creation. I mean, there wasn't air in the cosmos. And if we ever, you know, even if we hadn't fallen, we could have gone up into, you know, up into you know the universe and you know the fusion of the stars or water that you know you can drown. There's always a way that Adam and Eve could have experienced real suffering, but with the parents' care, those things were never meant to be a concern. And in fact, throughout the Bible, we see that whenever God does interact again in human reality, their reality shifts because of it. Joseph is saved, and all of Egypt is saved because of God's guardian hand saying, hey, there's going to, drought is coming, come, you know, take care. Right? Jesus shows up on the earth, and all of a sudden, he's in the boat, and the disciples are getting tossed around by the waves, and they're saying, we're going to drown, we're going to die a senseless, meaningless death in the boat, and they wake up Jesus, and he says, what's the problem? He says, calm. you know, see, be calm, and instantly, reality changes. There's a story of this woman who touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and suddenly she, was, she had been bleeding for something like 11 years before this. She had this, this malady that nobody could fix. Nobody knew how to cure her, and she, had, she was an outcast by society because of this, and they, she just touched the hem of his garment. You know what's so funny about that? All of a sudden, she was healed. Jesus didn't even know what happened. We think that sometimes God has to work only when we have mental capacity to actually focus on, you know, it's through our mental focus that somehow God, Jesus didn't even know what happened. He looked around like, what just, he knew something happened. He knew the power had left him. He knew, but she interacted with his reality and his reality transformed hers. See, when Adam and Eve showed up, they left and they 
denied God's reality. And so all kinds of other potential realities came in to existence. But when our reality enters into God's, again, reality changes. There's this concept that the Greeks had called palingia, I believe is what they called it. They believed, some philosophers believed that every millennia or two or three or who knows how long, but every once in a while the universe would just collapse on itself in this palingia, and then it would explode back out like a rubber band, and it would start over. It would reset, and all the bad and evil and crappy stuff would just kind of be restarted. And Jesus actually uses that word when he says, I'm coming again, and I'm going to palingia. I'm going to change it all again. I'm going to, we're going to reset, and the world is going to be as it was meant to be because I'm going to invade every facet of reality once again with the followers of Christ. All right. Third premise. You can believe in evil without God. The problem of evil in philosophy today has now been shown to be maybe even more difficult an issue for the atheist worldview than for the theists. Evil is typically seen as either the opposite of good or the lack of good, both of which are problematic for the atheist. When we look at the opposite of good, I think of C.S. Lewis, who started out his spiritual journey believing that atheism was true. When, he at, when explaining why, he said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? <clears throat> what C.S. Lewis is saying is that there is this deep sense of right and wrong, that people shouldn't suffer, that justice should be universal for everyone. But where does that come from? If you take God away, there is no basis for justice or right or wrong. <clears throat> Things just are with no purpose intrinsic to themselves. In fact, the evolutionary naturalist holds to a worldview that requires senseless suffering. It is the greatest engine of existence. You're, you credit senseless suffering and death on the vast scale for your existence because your ancestors, by and large, died senseless deaths, but a few of them survived, essentially making, in reality, evil the greatest good. The atheist has a hard time with this. And why do they have a hard time with that? Because of... In some ways, whether or not they recognize it, a sense of morality based on the theist's understanding. See, when we talk about the evil as lack, this is often explained through the heat and cold example. Cold is not an entity. It's simply the lack of heat. Heat is something active. It's something that you can measure. Cold is the lack of something that you can measure. That's why they talk about absolute zero. You can get to a point, about 2.7 Kelvin, where based on background radiation and whatever the universe, you basically can't get any colder than that. Because at that point, there is basically no heat existence, and that is what cold is. In the same way, some argue that that is essentially what good and evil is. Evil, to the Christian in this concept, is the lack of God's character, his lack of rule, lack of the garden in reality. But for the non-theist, what are you lacking? that's creating such evil to you? What benchmark are you using to say that something that should be there isn't? I have a brother who works for a tech company, a large one, and his, I was talking with him here over the break, and he was telling me about how his tech company uh, 
is getting sued or was sued recent past for about a billion dollars by a fed, uh, foreign government. The thing he said was so funny about all of this was that this government is known for being so corrupt that business practices just expect um, bribery and other things to be part of the daily work life. The government was suing his company because of alleged uh, bribery practices, although they were fairly minor in perspective. They found a foothold and sued the company. What was so ironic to my brother when I was talking to him about it was that the situation was the only way the country was able to sue his company was by using the company's own rules against them. See, when the company and a few other tech companies like them went into this country, they required certain laws to be enacted, saying, we're not going to do business as usual with you guys. We are not going to do, we're not going to be okay with bribery and all these different things that they had. So they enacted all these laws. And these laws suddenly kind of turn around to bite them in some ways. But it was only by this country using the laws and the rules and the standards of their company against them that they ever had a grounds or a basis for their lawsuit. By themselves, they never had it before. In a similar way, the atheist's critique of the church is only done by the atheist using the church's own moral basis to attack it. The lack of moral integrity in followers of Christ can only be toted as a failing by using the church's own rules of conduct something they would never have without religious underlying influence in our culture, understanding a concept of right and wrong, of justice and injustice. The atheist wants morality without God, and yet cannot find a basis for which morality stands without him. And so the very thing that they object to in faith is the very thing that falls out from underneath them when they try to use it. They have no foundation. They're floating over a black hole of their own creation. Now, you might say, this is all well and good, Nate, but I'm not letting God off the hook that easy. All of this sidestepping feels like you making excuses for God for how we get into this plight. But you see, that's the cool thing about followers of Christ or following Christ, is that in the gospel, it isn't God excusing himself from our situation, but it is him diving headlong into it. Though he could have said, you made your bed, now lie in it. Rather, he joined into our suffering. And if you've ever experienced real suffering, if you've ever experienced real tragedy, you'll often find that friends, they're as well-meaning as they may be, their comfort and their empathy feels hollow. But when you find someone who really gets it, I've, when somebody comes up to you and say, I've been there, I've experienced what you're going through, I know what it's like. You grab hold of those people like a lifeline because what suffering needs, what suffering wants is someone who understands and who can tell them that there is hope in the suffering. And in Christ, in Christianity, we find incredible tools to deal with human suffering. Jesus didn't just experience human existence, but he experienced the worst emotional and physical suffering humanity had to offer. They say the cross may be the worst way to die that humanity has ever discovered. The intense stress, even before the cross, in the, in the Garden of Golgotha, 
created such intense emotional turmoil within Jesus that he began to bleed blood. Now, throughout history, people used to think that that was just a myth and a folklore of Christendom until it has been documented. It's a medical condition. And if I can dare to use the word hematodrysis is a technical term when your sweat glands actually, it starts to break down the very tissue and your glands begin to actually bleed only under high stress, the most severe stress situations has this ever been documented to happen. Jesus was flogged so mercilessly that his skin was stripped of his, off his back, exposing muscle and bone. That was probably used by a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the end. The heavy whip was brought down with full force again and again across the victim's shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the weighted throngs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissue, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally sprouting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscle tissue. The word excruciating actually comes from out of the cross. That's where it comes from. Because when he got to the cross, he was nailed, not through the hands, but through the wrists because of the bone structure. It, it kept the victim in a, in a lifelong battle with, with the cross for as long as their life would last. Most people died not from the pain or the suffering, but from suffocation. Because while you were on the cross, you would collapse in pain and fall down, but your lungs would begin to fill up with fluids, and it would begin to suffocate. And then in excruciation, you would pull yourself up with the very wrists that have nails in them and breathe again, only to repeat the cycle. At this point, doctors suggest Jesus would have suffered dislocation of his shoulders, cramps, spasms, dehydration from severe blood loss, fluid in his lungs, and eventual lung collapse and heart failure. Yet he refused, as we see in Matthew 27, even to take painkillers that were offered to him. The common way that people ended crucifixion was by breaking the legs of the victims, basically keeping them from being able to raise up and, and gain a breath of air, creating a quick suffocation situation. When, they, when the soldiers came to Jesus, though, they found that he actually was already dead. To convince themselves that he was dead, they speared him in the side, piercing the heart. And what John articulates in his gospel is that not only blood, but water came out. They've found in medical journals as well that this is actually a condition of when the, the tissue around the heart basically explodes or breaks apart. The blood of the interior of the heart. This is rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died, not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but the heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. Jesus literally died of a broken heart. His physical death was as severe as anything humanity had to offer. But maybe the worst of it was what happened to him emotionally. If somebody comes up to you who you kind of know and says, I don't like you, it kind of hurts. If somebody that you really like, a best friend, comes up to you and says, I want nothing to do with you, that really hurts. Some of you guys are going to, you know, someday when you have spouses, if, if you ever had a spouse 
reject you and turn away from you and say, I want nothing to do with you. That overall, the level of intimacy creates the potential for pain and suffering. The greater the intimacy, the greater the potential for pain. And the Gospels tell us about who Jesus is. It says that he was God incarnate, part of the triune God. A God who forever and ever before this, in all of eternity, had the most perfect, unified, intimate relationship with the other parts of his being. And on the cross, that was ripped from him. In the same way that Adam and Eve were torn from the garden on the cross because of Christ's sin that he took upon himself for our behalf, the Father turned his back on him. And on the cross, in excruciating pain, not just physical, but emotional, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which was not a statement of rejection of God because he says, my God, even here, even now, I will not reject you. And yet, the cry of the heart was so severe. Christ's greatest suffering was the rejection of his heavenly relationship. All for you. Ephesians three seventeen says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled like the, with the measure of all fullness of God. Prominent British pastor John R.W. Stott once stated this. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. In imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nailed through the hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God's forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immutability to pain. He entered into our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings became more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. It's not just, and we're going to wrap up here, it's not just that Jesus is able to empathize with our suffering, but that he actually gives us hope in our suffering. See, we don't have a Savior who can just say, I've been there. But he also has, is one who can give us hope in it. If you're paying attention, you may have noticed that I both this evening have argued that we don't uh, no, something is pointless suffering. But I also argued pointless suffering came into the world. Which is it? Can it be pointless or can't it? Is suffering pointless, meaningless, or does it always have meaning? Is it always God's heart? Christianity is the only belief in the world that holds these two premises in concert. That the world is not as it should be, but even evil can be turned to good by his powerful hand. See, Buddhism says to live is to suffer, so we must escape existence altogether. Hinduism says the world is as it should be because you get what you deserve. Islam is fatalistic, leaving suffering at all as will. And even atheism, as we've looked at this evening, elevates needless suffering as necessary for life's existence. Only in Christianity do we have the means to wholly embrace the belief 
that this world truly has evil in it. And at the same time, believe there is hope because God can use all things, even the pointless suffering, to suddenly have meaning. The cross shows us not only a God who can relate to us, even in our worst, but one who uses the worst the world could throw at him as the means of our own redemption. Even the pointless suffering in life finds purpose in our master's hands. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But how can that be? Yesterday, my grandmother died. She had a bout of cancer for, last, for quite a while. We knew it was coming, although it happened pretty quick. And I was talking with her a couple months ago, and I was trying to empathize with her and, and comfort her in some way. And she just kind of chuckled at me and said, don't grieve for me. I am in a better place. Grieve for yourself if you need to. But grieve, but don't grieve for me. I'm, I'm going to be happier when this is all over. This isn't some empty platitude some point in her life back when everything was good and happy. This was facing death face on. What can give an old woman that kind of strength? In her life, she didn't always have an easy life. And one thing I've learned in her story is that it was the difficult seasons of her life that grew a deeper trust, dependence, and intimacy with God. It was in that strength that was unshakable, even in the face of death, that allowed her to stand in that place and say, I'm okay. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Romans 5.2 says, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And the hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If our suffering can push us into deeper dependence, trust, and love of Christ instead of this world, it's worth it. People put their hope in a lot of things in this life, but only hope in the Lord finds an unshakable eternal truth that overshadows all life. In the trilogy, Lord of the Rings, the worship team, you guys can come back up. In the trilogy, Lord of the Rings, Sam Ganji discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead as he thought, but alive. He cries, I thought you were dead. In fact, I thought I was dead, too. Is everything sad going to come untrue? In Christianity, the answer to that question is yes. And it will somehow be even greater from going through the struggle. So C.S. Lewis and... And the author of Lord of the Rings, they were friends, Tolkien there. And they, and C.S. Lewis, I think, had something the similar thought in mind when he wrote, They say of some temporal suffering that no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Stand with me. Two questions for you tonight. As we wrap up, one, and this isn't something we hit on very hard, but it is something that I think is worth addressing at the moment. Are you willing to suffer for the Lord? Like my pastor friend, like Jesus' testimony itself, like so many men and women in the Bible, are you willing to lay down your rights? Are you willing to sacrifice 
family and friends and careers and futures and your agenda? Are you willing to live in the garden under his rule and reign? Or are you going to like the story of Adam and Eve say, I want it my way? It's a new year. It's a good time to ask that question. Are you going to serve Christ? For some of you, the second question, some of you are experiencing evil right now in your own life. You're experiencing suffering. You've experienced something in your life, heartache and pain. And are you running to Christ? Who can turn all things for good. Not that he's going to take away the pain, but he's going to be with you in the pain, the grief, the hurt. He's going to transform those things, not take those things away, but transform them into something beautiful. But you have to run to him. You have to look to him, and you have to find him is your source of hope. So tonight, we're going to wrap up with one song. And just while we're doing that, I just want to invite, maybe, I don't want all small group leaders, but if a few small group leaders, if you guys just want to kind of come along the side. If if you're at that place, I just, I'm going through some rough stuff, some tough stuff's happening. It's happened to me or to people I love. If you just want to pray together, just seek the Lord together, we just want to invite you to come and pray with us when we do this last song. If you're someone that's like, man, I haven't been giving the Lord all my life, but I want to right now. It's a good time. And I'll just encourage you in this time as we pray and close to make that your commitment. So let me pray, and we'll go back into worship. But Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this time. Just pray that in this time, uh, you will speak to us. God, this world is full of pain and suffering and heartache and evil. Lord, without you, it is meaningless. Even worse than meaningless, it's destructive. But in you, we can find hope. Or may we find our hope in you tonight. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message brought you life, encouragement, and hope through the reality of Jesus Christ. If you would like to join us for a service, meet us at 7 p.m. at Health and Exercise Sciences, Room 105, every Thursday night. For more information, visit xacsu.com or facebook.com slash xacsu. Until next week, we love you. May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering.